You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Elizabeth Funk, who works at the intersection of profit and purpose, harnessing the power of capitalism to solve the world's most pressing problems. She believes that capitalism and entrepreneurial spirit are incredibly powerful forces that can be harnessed to create impact and magnitude. On today's show, we talk about what is the difference between environmental, social, and governance, ESG, invest in versus impact investing? What are the greatest opportunities for microlending? What are the pros and cons of a venture being for-profit or non-profit? What are typical questions that an impact board asks themselves? And much more. This episode was filmed live at the Sapien Impact Hub in Menlo Park. All right, let's start the episode. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Elizabeth, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, I'm super excited. We're here live at the Sapien Impact Hub in Menlo Park, and I'm really excited for this event. I want to thank Catherine who made the introduction that allowed this interview to happen, but I've done a lot of research on your background. It's incredible. But for our audience, for our listeners, could you give us a little bit of background? Sure. Thanks, Sean. My career has been what I would call a zigzag. I started out, I graduated from Stanford undergraduate and I started out in technology. I was at Microsoft. It makes me feel very old, but it was back when we were just introducing Windows. And I was a product manager helping think about what features and functions people would like to see in a word processor. I was a Microsoft Word product manager and, and then was on the founding team of Microsoft Office and went to business school at Harvard and came back to Silicon Valley and was one of the very first employees at Yahoo, which was really fun. It was before we had a sign on the door. We were about 30 people and literally we were crammed into one little room that the guy whose cubicle was next to mine, I had to share a trash can with him because you couldn't get in and out of the cubicles if you didn't. Really, it was a, such a fun time because we didn't have any idea how people were going to use the internet. And we were just sort of making it up as we went along. And it was very entrepreneurial. And, and I was responsible for a bunch of the business development side, the business side of a, of a bunch of products, including mail and cert and Yahoo Finance and so forth. And then I was one of the one of my favorite projects at Yahoo was that I was one of the only women and I was convinced. I said, wouldn't it be cool if you could shop online? And the guys are like, no, <laughs> shopping's not fun. Why would we want to shop online? The internet's for stock quotes and sports scores and pornography. And, and I thought, but shopping for shoes is a little bit like pornography for women, right? Like we don't actually have to buy them, but we enjoy the shopping process. We enjoy browsing and looking and that turns pages. And they were not convinced. I went out and bought HTML for dummies and literally wrote a Yahoo shopping page. And so that was kind of one of my, my claim to fame. I obviously eventually did get their attention. And, and there was an entire team that was responsible for Yahoo shopping. And of course, e-commerce turned out to be about two thirds of the company's revenues. I turned out to be right, but, but it was really fun. I really loved my Yahoo days. But the thing was that by the time I got to be like 3000 employees, it just felt bureaucratic. And, and part of being young in your career is, is having self-awareness about where you fit in sort of the company's life cycle. And, and I realized very early that I'm not the idea person, but I'm the person who can grab an idea and say, 
ah, I know how to do that, right? And could make something happen. But then when it gets to be professionalized and it's 3,000 people and it's much more about business planning and it just, it's no longer interesting to me. I left Yahoo and, and stepped up to be the CEO of a publicly traded company that was based in Canada. It was an investment firm that owned, it was kind of a mess actually. It owned like 12 different businesses, minority positions in 12 businesses, and it shouldn't have been publicly traded. It was a really fun project where we sold 10 of the 12 assets, took that money and bought in the remaining shares of privatized and then sold the company. So basically, I, I shut down a public company, <laughs> just kind of a fun exercise. But then, but then when I left, I started thinking about what I was going to do next. And I wanted to go back into technology. I thought I was going to come back to Silicon Valley and get involved in another tech startup. But as most people do when they're in kind of career hiatus, they, I thought, well, while I'm taking a little time to think about what I want to do next, maybe I'll get involved in something impactful and something philanthropic. And I really thought about it as philanthropy. And, and I, as I was looking around, the thing that really caught my attention was microfinance. I loved the idea of helping people build their own way out of poverty. And having been from Silicon Valley, seeing the power of entrepreneurship and how incredible and how passionate people can be when they are running their own business, I really was smitten by the idea of taking that to developing countries. I got involved in microfinance philanthropically. I figured that I would just be supporting some organizations and, and, uh, and, and was introduced to Muhammad Yunus, who's sort of the founder of microfinance. And I was invited to potentially join the board of Grameen Bank. I went as an observer to a board meeting. And as I'm looking at, at what I'm hearing and I'm thinking, wait, but this is profitable. And, and as I looked at the microfinance industry, the vast majority of microfinance organizations were 2,000 borrowers or fewer. They were tiny, no economies of scale, no professional management. And because of that, they had to charge really high interest rates. But the big ones, and there were very few, had economies of scale and could actually afford to to charge a lower interest rate. They were, so, so I started thinking like, why are we doing this nonprofit dollars, right? Like if I could get a donation of $100, but I might get a million dollars if I could tell the investor that they were going to get their money back with some sort of a return. And Muhammad Yunus looked at me and he said, unethical to make money while doing good. And I kind of understand where he was coming from, which if you are an investor and you're trying to maximize returns, that could be conflicting with the goals of impact. But it was really a pivotal moment for me where I struggled with that. And I thought that if I can help more people faster and charge them a lower interest rate, I'm actually okay with my ethics on that, right? Like I'm, then Steve Rockefeller pulled me aside at the lunch break and he's like, don't worry so much about the ethics. It's just not possible. And I walked out of there thinking, what? I know I'm right. I just know it. And just to prove the concept, I raised a little $10 million fund, friends and family, called the Dignity Fund. This was way before the concept of impact investing had even been coined. But I just knew that if we could put for-profit dollars into these microfinance organizations, they could get really big and ideally charge lower interest rates and help more people and, and help them better. And so I started the Dignity Fund. Most people thought I was crazy. And even my investors were like, wait, but why am I getting my money back? Microfinance is charity. I must supposed to get my money back. It was really an education process. But, but we, we invested in 14 organizations in 12 countries and got a nice little return for our investors, 6.5% IRR. The most important thing was I, didn't, I knew I wasn't going to be the one that was going to poverty in, in the world, but it was trying to be a demonstration effect. And one of the important things I did is I, I got HSBC, Deutsche Bank, Citibank to all sit on my investment committee meetings. And because the point was to prove to them that they should be doing this. And Deutsche Bank went on very shortly thereafter and raised an $85 million fund in microfinance that I was on that board. And 
And now the vast majority today, the vast majority of money that goes into microfinance is for profit. And the microfinance industry is largely credited for, I mean, we've, we've more or less eradicated what the UN would call extreme poverty in the world. And microfinance has been a big part of that. It was really exciting. And I have to say, I got smitten by this idea of, of the fact that you can do good while investing and that even charitable causes, if they can find a for-profit model, can scale much quicker and more powerfully. And, and so I never found the day job. Let's just say that. <laughs> Since that time, I've been involved in impact investing, which is now not just an elusive term, but is really an entire industry. I've been involved in impact investing since then. That was 2004. Been involved in a number of funds. I've been on the investment committee of a fund of funds. I've done, I've raised a number of funds and really feel passionately about the idea that investing with your values is both great for the investor, but also is going to help scale the, the solutions to the world's problems. And I, I always say, if, if somebody can get rich solving this world's problem, the problem will get solved. And harnessing the power of capitalism, or to be blunt, you could call it greed, but it's, but it's a powerful force and we need to harness it and put it in the right direction. And that's how we're going to solve you know, the really big problems, not with philanthropy. So do you still have a Yahoo email? I do. I'm Elizabeth at yahoo.com. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put that in the show notes. Be prepared for even more spam. Where's all the misinformation in the whole impact investment arena? Yeah, first of all, impact investing has now been around for about 20 years. And I think that people have this conception when they first get into impact investing. Well, first, the biggest one is there's a lot of confusion between impact investing and ESG. As ESG, ESG for our audience, what does it stand for? That's environmental, social, and governance. And it is a filter that is typically applied to uh, public companies and public company investing that can. Basically, the idea is that there is more to a company's both risks and opportunities than are captured on the balance sheet and income statement. And if you're evaluating investing in a company, you need to look at more than just the financial aspects. And ESG has really taken off. I think it's a very, very powerful movement, let's call it, right? And, and honestly, but ESG investing is the goal is to maximize your financial returns and to make more informed financial investment decisions in companies that are not impactful, they're the general companies in the world, but making more informed investments. And that's very different from impact investing. Impact investing is investing specifically in companies whose product or service is going to make a positive impact in the world. And that tends to be private companies. They tend to be generally small, but more and more really growing. And I think some of the misconceptions about impact investing, the first is that by investing my portfolio in ESG, I'm doing impact investing, right? So they're very different. What should we know about impact-focused companies? Impact companies are, are very different in the sense that they've got two missions, right? They're trying to, trying to, to grow and, and make money for their investors, but they're also trying to do good. And it, it, it takes a lot more vigilance in terms of the board and the management to be very, very clear about what the company's objectives are. And I think that because those two objectives are sometimes um, in conflict, it's super important that the company is clear upfront about what they are trying to accomplish and have really clear agreement with the board and with investors, quite frankly, about are we trying to maximize impact or maximize our returns or somewhere in between and be sure that we've agreed on on those lines. The other thing is that with impact companies, 
you'll often have founders who come at it almost philanthropic reasons. They have a philanthropic goal, but they have realized that being a profit structured company is going to help them scale. And then you have companies on the other side where the founder is trying to maximize revenue and return and has realized that if it's got a nice little impact veneer on it, that that's going to you know, maybe attract investors. And, and, and there's everything in between. And being very, very clear about what the company's mission is and agreeing on that in advance is super important. And your first fund, the MicroLendon Fund, how did you go about measuring the impact of it? Other than you said 6% return, how did you manage to put metrics or that around this helped this many people, this did that? Yeah, it's fun because back then there was not all the infrastructure there is today. There, there are great impact measurement tools and, and standards and so forth. But back then there weren't. Generally, what our portfolio companies did was was they would look at very easy to measure things because the loan officers were going out to the villages and making these loans and they you know be asked to collect data, but you couldn't make that too onerous. And generally, it was actually really interesting. It was whether the borrower at the beginning of the loan had a solid floor under the house because if it's dirt, there tends to be more disease and, and what percent of their kids are in school, particularly girls. And then at the end of the loan, checking back in on the, that data because Having your kids in school is, is actually, unfortunately, in extreme poverty is a real luxury, and particularly your girls. And that was, we would always be asked, like, what percent of your borrowers you brought up across the poverty line? As if this is like some line in the sand and people walk across it, right? They're, they, they don't necessarily measure their income in, in dollars or, or pesos, right? They have trading flour for, for transportation and, and all that. It's just really hard to measure. We would come up with sort of these more unique, measurements that assured us that, you know, what we were doing was making an impact and changing lives. And you touched on it at the beginning, but can you dive a little bit deeper of why microlending? What motivated you to do that? When I was looking into um, the microfinance world, I went on a, on a trip to go see microfinance in action and in India. And I, I met a mother, a single mother, who had a cow and had three children. And she would sell the cow's milk, but it was not enough money to feed all three children. And she, every night she had to look in the eyes of one of them and say, I'm sorry, she had to decide which children were going to eat and which ones weren't. And, and she had just decided that it was painful, that she was going to save her extra pennies and save up for poison, that she could kill herself and them and end everybody's misery. And at that point, she was introduced to this microfinance bank that lent her $400. And for $400, she was able to buy a thermometer that could pasteurize the milk into cheese, which sells for obviously a whole lot more. And by the time I got there, I met her and heard her story. And she had all three kids after school, and they were in school, biking to the other villages, selling, selling her cheese, and, uh, and had really made it out of her desperation for $400. And and I just became hooked on this, on this idea and this concept that people can build their own way out of poverty. And, and I named it the Dignity Fund because it really is about dignity. People don't want handouts. They want to build their own solutions, but they need, they need access. They need help. They need, they're not allowed to go into banks. They're guards with machine guns to keep people like them out, right? And so building inclusive financial systems is, is just so important. And, and I've just seen the power of it. So I, I loved it and fell in love with it. And, and I feel like microfinance is one of the many tools that, that we have in our arsenal to really make a big dent in, 
in poverty and suffering. Where do you think there's the greatest opportunity in micro-lending? Opportunity for the future. I mean, the industry has evolved much now that it's really professionalized and scaled. I think that, well, first of all, loans are one tool for financial inclusion for the poor, but they're not necessarily the most important or the right one for a lot of people, right? And the other thing that, that is really missing in a lot of these developing countries is, is, is a vehicle for savings. If you make your money and you stick it under your mattress, and then quite frankly, I hate to say it, but a lot of our borrowers are women. Your husband comes home and he knows where it is and he takes it and he goes and drinks it, right? And savings um, is a really huge and important thing. And it's, it's tricky because a lot of these countries don't have the equivalent of an FDIC. It's very hard to allow these microfinance banks to take savings. But, but the ones that have figured out how to do that regulatory-wise is, is really valuable. There's also a huge need for insurance. You find that the poor save disproportionately because they have to because they're worried. That if a child gets sick and they have to use the money to buy medicine, that it's going to throw off the entire family's economic system. And the lack of insurance is, is causing people to not invest all of the money that they have in what they're doing. And micro insurance is super important. But then you know, there are lots of opportunities now. I mean, the old model of microfinance was a loan officer would bike out to a village once a week. And they'd have a little ceremony and everybody would get up and repay their loan in front of each other. But, but now with digital banking and, and cell phones and so forth, the big opportunity is to be able to really reduce costs in the system and therefore, of course, reduce the interest rate with, uh, with mobile banking. And your next fund, it was in Latin America, it was multiple countries. How much more difficult was that to do something geographically spread out versus just one isolated area? It's kind of the other way around, which was that in microfinance, we were picking one topic, which is microfinance, really specializing in understanding how to, how to do due diligence and, and how to select microfinance organizations. But it was across 14 countries. I've kind of learned that you pick one topic and you, do, you can do it globally, or you pick a specific country or specific region and you can do more topics, right? So our, my Latin America fund is that the expertise is in working in those countries, that allows us to do different theses and different types of companies. In Latin America, we are in, we are in lots of countries. We're in Nicaragua, Honduras, Panama, Costa Rica, Ecuador. But we are investing in different sectors. We're doing, investing a lot in low-income housing. Sustainable agriculture companies are, are really important to buy products from poor farmers because the world's extreme poverty seems to be disproportionately in rural and, and, and farmers. And so we can, we can cover a couple different topics. In, but Latin America also is kind of funny. It's almost like the United States and they're each different states. I mean, they're similar, especially those smaller countries. And you really can kind of develop expertise in the region. And, but if we were going to do big countries, and we have talked about doing like a Brazil-specific fund or Mexico-specific fund, those would need to be country-specific. Because you really need to develop the expertise in learning about the, obviously, the government and the regulations, but also the cultures are different and the, the, the way the business world operates is different. I lived in Costa Rica for almost two years. One of these days, we got to get drinks and share some stories. But I got a question for you on, you've been to all these emerging countries, other than just straight money, what else is lacking in that entrepreneur business community? What, what would help them other than just dollars and cents? Well, what you've hit on is the entrepreneur community because these countries don't have the entrepreneurial ecosystem and quite frankly, cultural ethos for entrepreneurship. 
here in Silicon Valley, we're spoiled and entrepreneurship is almost taken for granted. And there's, of course, the whole ecosystem of the venture capitalists, but there's support systems and, and networks and education and there are lawyers who know how to deal with entrepreneurs. And, and there's an entire business ecosystem that does not exist in developing countries. And being an entrepreneur in a developing country, you're kind of on your own. And there aren't venture capital funds for the most part down there. I mean, we're coming in from the US and there's not all of the support systems that have been so important here in Silicon Valley. It's much more challenging to be an entrepreneur in, in those developing countries. And when you were raising these funds and talking to the investors, you'd mentioned that it sounded almost like they're thinking it was a donation, but can you go a little bit more into these types of conversations you were having with the people that were writing you the check to then help others out? Well, impact investors tend to come at investing very differently than traditional investors who are looking to maximize returns. Generally, the impact investors, are they care about this topic. They care about the change that the impact is going to make. And that is first and foremost, and, it's, and, and the returns expectations are secondary. Some, you know, impact investing is not all one flavor. There are some that are specifically impact first, that are trying to accomplish the impact and that using a financial model seems to be the sharpest tool to accomplish the impact. That was certainly what it was in microfinance. In microfinance, I wanted to expand the microfinance industry. The goal was to get more loans to poor people. And if I could do that best with philanthropy, I would have used philanthropy. But I believe that the sharpest tool was for-profit investing. And so, but it was very clear with investors, our goal here is to expand microfinance and your investment will help us do that, but we're not maximizing that. Then you also have impact investment funds that are really trying to maximize returns and therefore may make different trade-offs. And I think the other thing that's really important is having very clear conversations with investors about where you are on the spectrum between concessionary returns or, or profit maximization and making sure that you're aligned. Because every time I'm in a boardroom, right? as an example, you, I'm in a boardroom with a company that's buying mangoes from poor farmers, right? If I'm trying to profit maximize, I want to pay as little as possible. And if I'm trying to help poverty alleviation, I want to pay as much as possible, right? And being aligned and having investors understand from the beginning where we are on that spectrum as a fund is super important. And generally with impact investors, they are more interested in the impact and the returns are secondary. We're especially finding that as the younger generations are starting to control the funds. They really want to make an impact with their money and they're not really concerned about maximizing the returns. And that allows impact funds to make different decisions about how risky or how concessionary the investments are that they make. But what about the board, a board that is composed for one of these impact funds? What are the conversations like there? Are those people that are on the board, are they especially niched in the nonprofit sector, their background? I'm kind of curious about the composition of an impact investment board. Sure. Well, generally, we want to have people that have industry expertise in the topic. If we've got a food company, I want to have people who are from the food industry, generally folks that have corporate experience. Because the other thing about impact-focused companies, they and I'm speaking primarily about in developing countries, they, don't ha they haven't had the expertise of how to build a company. And they generally don't have professional governance structures. They don't have reporting structures. And one of the things that I think we bring as board members is to help them professionalize their organization and bring, and bring that sort of more corporate type thinking. And, and generally, the, the boards tend to be coming from the profit world, from the for-profit world, and, and hopefully have industry sector expertise. But 
those board meetings are always, again, if we've done our job and we've, and we've agreed in advance where we are on the spectrum of between impact focused and, and returns focused, we, we tend to hold each other accountable, right? And making those trade-offs and those decisions are very tangible. It's very transparent that we are making the decisions that we are, which is to maybe we're not going to profit maximize. Maybe we really want to do this a different way where it's going to help the poor farmers or we're going to be able to build more housing, even if it's going to minimize our returns. And there are obviously very interesting conversations when you've got two different goals that you're, that you're trying to balance. Could you dive deeper into that? The questions that the board will ask themselves, because that's very interesting. It's for profit or, or, I mean, to make money or to do good? How do they go about the decision? How are, how are those internal conversations? Generally, the, the folks who are investing in impact investing funds are interested in seeing the impact and that is their biggest priority. And generally, it, we look at any corporate decision through the lens of what is going to allow us to make bigger impact. And obviously, growing our bottom line is going to allow the company to make bigger impact. And so, Internal conversations are, are really around if we, if we can do more with this company and grow this company, whatever it is, whether it's building low-income housing as an example, and we want to, want to do more of that, that's you know, making sure that we're all still prioritizing the reason that we're there. And, and the nice thing is that a lot of the money is coming in from either foundations or family offices that have specifically designated, we want to see this good happen. And you know, that's sort of a guiding principle from our fiduciary responsibility is to, is to follow what, what the investors are wishing for. The companies that you invest in, are they pretty much siloed or do they do joint partnerships with each other? Do they work together to better to bring everyone up? With my current fund in Latin America, I've seen a lot of interesting collaboration. In fact, we've done one company that we created ourselves that was specifically a collaboration of a number of our businesses. We have our chocolate company in Costa Rica. We have a company called Candid Snacks that is a snacking cacao health food snack. And, and it's got mangoes from our company in Nicaragua. And it's got quinoa from our company in Peru. And it's got the cacao from our company in Costa Rica. And that is literally a collaboration between our, our investment companies. But, but, more, but, but aside from that, there's a lot of interesting, important collaborations. It's why we tend to focus on specific industries. We've been this fund, we've got two or three specific industries like housing, where they help us with our deal flow because the folks in the housing industry know other people who are doing similar stuff, right? We get, we get interesting investment pipelines, but they also can share knowledge. And, and we've seen a lot of knowledge sharing, like for instance, in our agricultural portfolio about how to work with poor farmers, which is, is expensive and tricky, but really mission aligned. And so we've got we have knowledge sharing from our company in, in Nicaragua that's just doing awesome, that's doing mangoes and, and dragon fruit and so forth. And so that knowledge sharing gets shared back. And, and largely that knowledge sharing happens because of what we do as a fund. We have managers that work for us that go around between our various portfolios and consult and help them figure out their processes and figure out things. And they can say, well, this is what the guys in Nicaragua are doing about that problem. The knowledge sharing is really helpful. With all these companies you've mentioned, there's probably one that has some story that really hits you that, that you could share with us. Well, I mean, I feel like they're all like my babies. It's hard to, hard to say like which of your child, children is your favorite. But, but one that I, that I will call out is a company that is based in Ecuador. It's in both Ecuador and Peru, and it's got a female CEO, which is very rare. And they grow hot chilies from about 700 farmers in Ecuador and Peru. And they 
have really specialty chilies, like ghost chilies and scorpion and and forth that they buy from these small farmers and they mash them or dry them and, and sell them in the North America markets to, to Tabasco and other hot sauce companies. And obviously the farmers are getting you know, two or three times for their peppers, what they would get if they were trying to sell them on the local market. But it's been a fun example because this company that didn't have a board, they didn't really have professional systems in place. And it's near and dear to my heart because as investors, we, we came in, we're obviously the first professional money in and could really help them shape their, their corporate structures and, and really help them grow. And, and now they're, they're really poised for success and they're growing like crazy. And, and the hot specialty chili pepper market, I knew nothing about, but, but it's actually just really fun to see how, first of all, hot peppers are really growing in the market. It's like a, it's very trendy right now. We're kind of the right place at the right time. And speaking of kind of the trajectory of the market, where do you see ESG investing in that, say five years from now? Well, ESG investing, there's not going to be anything other than ESG investing. And, and honestly, I think that if you're an investor, even if you have, you're not looking at it from an ethics or, or impact standpoint at all, you're just trying to maximize your portfolio, you're ridiculous if you're not looking at ESG factors because they are going to be so important to, to evaluating investments in companies, whether they are, there's going to be a regulatory risk. Certainly, certainly you're seeing that as the millennials start to move in, that are controlling more of the investment funds, but also controlling more of the purchasing decisions, they are demanding that companies are environmentally responsible and that they are socially responsible and that they're diverse boards and all the rest. And I think that, that companies, first of all, we also know there have been thousands of studies that have shown that investment funds that are using ESG as filters are outperforming those that don't. And this is not really about investors having impact focus. This is about even just investors that are trying to maximize their returns are, are missing out if they're not looking through ESG factors. I really believe that, that there's not going to be a difference between ESG investing and, and traditional investing. I think all investing is going to be looking at those ESG factors. I also believe that there's going to be a lot more pressure to be, for companies to be thinking about their ESG aspects. And, and largely because not only do studies show that those companies outperform, but companies with diverse boards outperform that millennials are willing to pay more for products that are, have been you know, produced with environmental and, and social goals. You'll see that uh, millennials are more likely to return gifts that, that they don't see that are from companies that they don't believe are ESG responsible. I actually I saw an interesting study from McKinsey that in the M&A space that said that potential acquirers, when they're looking at companies to acquire, are willing, you know, something like 25% of them were willing to pay a premium for a company, 20 to 50% for a company that, was, that they thought was ESG responsible. And so it's, it's fundamental business sense at this point. And I really think that it's to say ESG is going to grow is kind of silly. It's sort of like, it's just going to be, like it's going to be the thing that, it, that, that folks are doing in their investment decisions. Now, impact investing has also really moved forward in the last 20 years. And it's no longer just, it used to be kind of more like angel investing and these cute little companies, these little social enterprises. And now there are professional funds that are investing in impact. And these funds are second and third and even fourth generation, right? So you're starting to see track records and, and they're, they're big funds and they know what they're doing. And, and the impact investing side is, is really matured and it's, and it's grown quickly. And I think it's going to be really kind of its own asset class that, that folks will invest in with different thinking than they would invest in a venture capital fund in Silicon Valley. But I think that different thinking is 
is is where particularly in the millennials who are taking over a lot more of the money in, in the investment world, that's what they're prioritizing. And I want to ask, earlier you focused on nonprofits, but from my understanding, your current venture is a for-profit. Why, why the switch there? What's your thoughts of nonprofit versus profits? Yes, I've spent the last 20 years trying to figure out, starting with microfinance, helping organizations that might have been nonprofits think about how to find sustainable business models and to be able to take for-profit investment dollars. And I've been you know, really kind of the preaching for this idea of, of finding sustainable ways and business models for pro- projects that are social good and that let people make money while doing good and then the problems will get solved. But it's a little ironic that during the pandemic, obviously, I, I made the decision that we had finished uh, investing our fund one in Latin America and we finished fund investing fund two. We were getting ready to raise fund three when the pandemic hit and no investors were investing in anything at that point. And we decided to pause the fundraising for, of course, what we thought was going to be a month of pandemic. And, and, and I started thinking about what I could do in the meantime. And, and I was looking for what I would think of as a project and, and started looking around home. And I just felt like this homelessness problem here in California is killing me. And I, I went into it with a, a naive a frame, right? And, and knowing very little about homelessness, but started to study it. And the thing that gets me every time is when I look at an industry and a situation and there's one gaping hole that people aren't seeing. And then I'm like, oh man, <laughs> I'm going to have to do this. <laughs> but but in, in the homelessness world, I, I, I took a look at it and I felt like in California, we're spending all of our money on permanent housing. We have these huge budgets and we put them all into building permanent housing. And the result is that 72% of our homeless are unsheltered and they're on these waiting lists. And we're not, we don't have a good strategy for that 72%. We, we put them in these big rooms with bunk beds and people didn't want to go to those before and they definitely don't want to go to those now. And we, we hadn't really thought about how to, and, and therefore they don't come, right? These big shelters and they're half empty. And cities say, we don't need more shelters. They're half empty. Well, of course they are. And so it just seems obvious that what, what we need is, is interim housing, places where people can come immediately that's really inexpensive, but where everybody has their own room. And if they can have their own space, they can have a door that locks, they have the dignity of that, then, then they can get out of survival mode and start to work on the problems. And we started talking about, we started talking to manufacturers and whether we could build something that could be really fast, prefabricated. And, and we've, we've come up with this model that they're kind of like high-end Ikea, like there are these panels and you set them up and they can build these like kind of tiny homes things for very, very little money. And we've now officially started a 501c3. We have our 501c3 status. It's called Dignity Moves. I have a few employees and we are building um, these interim housing projects across California. We've got one in San Francisco, one in Santa Barbara. Looks like we'll be doing one in Sonoma and Alameda, Santa Maria. We are, uh, yeah, we're sort of trying to fill a really important hole in the picture of addressing homelessness because I feel like in California, it's just, it's just absolutely unacceptable. We've got to be getting serious about getting people off the streets. With that, are there laws and regulations changing that will help you out in this endeavor? Well, yes. A lot of things have, have aligned. The first one is that, that California issued emergency building codes to allow us to build emergency housing that are not... The, the problem is that in, with permanent housing in California, it's costing like $850,000 per unit to build permanent housing, even if it's the affordable for the homeless. And it's largely because of the building codes. California has issued emergency building codes that allow us to build really inexpensive and really fast, but still safe. 
And and that's been one important piece of legislation that's that's really helped. There's another one that is is really driving the demand is that there was a little known lawsuit that happened right before the pandemic, which is why I didn't get any attention, where some homeless advocates in, in Idaho sued the city of Boise and said, you shouldn't be allowed to move people from encampments and, and enforce your anti-camping laws if, you, if they don't have a place to go. It shouldn't be illegal to do something that you can't avoid. And that went to the Supreme Court of Appeals and was upheld. And that applies to California and all of the states in the Ninth Circuit. And technically, cities are not allowed to break up encampments if they don't have enough shelter beds for people. And that's scaring a lot of these cities. All of a sudden, they're thinking, wow, maybe we shouldn't just focus all of our money on permanent housing. That's going to take five years because we want the legal right to be able to move people. And, and it might not be for the right motivation, but it's still creating the right outcome, which is that, that cities are really interested in, in now thinking about rapid housing and rapid solutions for the homelessness. And what lessons did you learn in your past? I mean, from Yahoo to the funds that are helping you in this current endeavor? The first one is that in Yahoo, rewinding even further, when I was at Microsoft, when we'd come up with a new product feature, we'd think about it and it would take 18 months because we you know we'd release a new software release every 18 months. It was really, really slow feedback cycle. You'd put out a feature and then two years later, you'd find out whether people liked it or not. right? And then with the internet, you could literally put up a feature and generally what would happen with me is I would stay at work and sleep under my desk, <laughs> wake up the next morning or a couple times in the night to see whether people were using it and how it was being used as a feedback cycle was instant. And, and that kind of throw something against the wall and see what sticks mentality is, is really carried with me, which is let's just experiment. Like we don't know exactly what the right solutions are, but let's try, right? Let's, let's throw something out there, do it really inexpensively where we're not investing a lot that is going to be irreversible, but, but just try things. And that I've definitely carried that into starting this, this nonprofit. And then as you can imagine, with my long history of, of impact investing, doing these first few projects philanthropically, but my brain is already going towards how we're going to set this up as an investment model. And, and, I, and I do feel like the first couple of projects, proving ourselves, getting these built and being able to walk people through them, that's the right place for philanthropy. And then as with microfinance, the industry started with philanthropy, got to get it going. But then once it's proven, to be able to bring in investment dollars to really scale it. So that's, that's, that's where we're headed. And Elizabeth, if anyone wants to find out more about you, your current project, what's the best way to go about doing it? My email is elizabeth at dignityfund.com. And my new Dignity Moves is dignitymoves.org, the homelessness initiative. And I've also got a website, dignitycapital.com, that kind of covers my, my for-profit investing initiatives. Fantastic. We'll have all that information in the show notes. For our listeners, please go to thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. Follow us on social media, our handles, the Silicon Valley Podcast, and connect with me on LinkedIn if you want to find out what I do outside the podcast, where I'm a mid-market investment banker, focused on mergers, acquisitions, growth capital, and secondaries. And with that, Elizabeth, I want to thank you for your time today, and I want to thank Sapiens for hosting us. Thanks, everyone, from the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.